This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I am speaking with Sean Alquist, who is an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. Sean, good morning. Thank you for being on the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you and hear about the work that you're involved with as it relates to autism spectrum disorder and uh, some of your collaborations with, um, with other folks that are in your field um, and, and to hear some of your inspiration, kind of the why behind your, what you're doing. So, um, but since there's so much to talk about, um, in terms of your research and your work, I'm just going to ask you to, to give us a little introduction to, you know, maybe who you are and how you came into doing this work and, and, and start wherever you'd like in terms of what's <laughs> happening in your day to day. So uh, being a professor of architecture, um, of course, you know, what I study and explore and research is the design of environments. What brought that interest to this area of um, understanding how children, individuals with autism relate to their environments is that I have a daughter with autism. She's now 10 years old. When I started this work, she was around five years old. So we've been doing it for a little while. Mm-hmm. And I just started to, to see, you know, as we started to learn more and more about her and learn more and more about autism as a parent, started to see how how much influence the environment would have on her in both a, a negative but also a positive way. So, you know, those moments when it seems to tap all of the right kind of sensory cues that are of interest to her, um, she really opens up. She communicates. She's much more focused. She's much more interested in what she's doing. She wants to, um, you know, pull other people into that experience. And, you know, it becomes a kind of combination of sensory interaction or sensory experience with social interaction. Mm -hmm. So the idea that as an architect, I could think about space and really design space in a way that can be adaptive to my daughter and allow her to explore and discover those kind of really valuable moments, preferential moments for her, um, that was kind of of the the starting point and and sort of ongoing um, hmm. effort for th- figuring things out over um, over these past years. That's really cool. So so would that mean that you sort of started on this journey maybe in your own home, like in in her room or spaces where you were interacting with her in a as a family? Yeah, very much. I mean, um, I think there's maybe two moments. So for one, kind of discovering the interpersonal kind of interactions that worked for her. So she's not necessarily a cuddler or let's say she doesn't have the kind of typical ways that you would show love to your child. Mm -hmm. Those aren't exactly appealing to her, but something, you know, you've gained her trust when she sets you up in a situation where she's sitting behind you. She just 
puts her arms around your chest and just drags you backwards to lay on top of her. Ah, it's a somewhat okay. kind of awkward experience, but <laughs> for her, it's actually quite exciting. Mm-hmm. And it shows that, you know, she, she trusts you and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, the other moment, the other moment was we, at, at one point, we got a, a small car. We had had an SUV at that point, but we got this small car. And there is just something about that space, the color, the textures, the scale. It, I mean, to this day, she requires us to drive her around for at least an hour at a time, once, mm-hmm. if not more times every day. Mm-hmm. And there's something about all of the all of the sensations as they come together. So driving down the road, seeing the horse farms that we drive by, um, the duration of that experience, the her ability to, you know, tell us which songs she wants to hear on the radio. So that kind of combination of sensory stimuli is something that just, you know, really it, it, it really suits her needs, like it just on a daily basis. Interesting. Um, and you, and you didn't see and, that with the SUV? No, we didn't see that with the SUV. It was almost like it's more, it was too kind of chaotic, too large of a space mm-hmm. that I don't think she necessarily got as comfortable mm-hmm. um, or, you know, as kind of clear and communicative and calm to a certain degree as well. And and the other correlation that we started to see was um, at the time that we got that car, I was really struggling to build a relationship with my daughter. Her name is Ada. And what ended up working was that combined sensation that was really valuable for her. Well, I became the kind of arbiter. I became the person that delivered that to her. And through that, she built trust in me that I could provide her with that necessary experience every day. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the kind of way that we started to finally formulate a relationship and and trust between each other. So, So bringing it back to architecture, there's always been this interest that at the end of the day, it's trying to build social bonds and improve communication and, you know, open up opportunities for those social experiences. But the point being that the best way to do that is to really synchronize it with some sort of um, sensory experience that, um, whether it's Ada or another child, um, is something that they're uh, able to kind of discover, but also, you know, tailor to their own um, you know, specific kind of interests and needs. Interesting. Okay. So, so thank you for that background. That's a very interesting story. And, and what I find is every time I'm talking to the parent of somebody on the spectrum or somebody or a caregiver of any kind, really everybody's experience is unique and different. And so, you know, I'll take that story as, as your personal story, but I'm sure there's quite a few no- number of people who are listening who probably can relate on many levels to that type of experience with their own child. But let's move it now. Now into into that our, our bigger architecture uh, conversation and and some of the work that you're now doing because I que- I ask this question of just about everybody who's doing research in in the field when it comes to taking something that they personally experienced or observed or sort of one piece of researched information and then trying to expand that to the autism spectrum, which, as you know, is a, is a huge thing. So you mm-hmm. just said it all comes down kind of to sensory experience that, that they can discover, but that also can be tailored to their specific 
needs, you know, um, joys, what they're seeking, maybe sensorially. So how do you do that? How do you do that and remain true to your research so that you're looking at maybe one thing, but you have to sort of look at whether it would sure. work and be ta- and could be tailored to so many? <laughs> So I think I think maybe two ways. So one, what we really try to do is, I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to give these children as much agency in these spaces that they occupy um, as possible. So in a kind of more normative architectural environment, um, you know, it's all about kind of hard surfaces and immutable stim- stimulations, right? Immutable kind of inputs. So if there's something problematic with that environment, then it's going to be very difficult, um, especially for someone like my daughter who is um, nonverbal. Um, she doesn't have the tools or the ability or the kind of direct understanding for how to manipulate that environment, um, nor does the environment have the, di- the dials and buttons to be able to manipulate it in a way that's going to you know, fit her um, if she's feeling uncomfortable. So the idea is, you know, how can we create an environment that gives them as much agency to change the nature of it? And really, at the end of the day, um, I try to consider my daughter as much of a designer of space as I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I give her sort of a canvas to work within, and then she can operate within that space however she wants. And as she operates, there is always this sense of you know reverberation. She changes the environment, and then it reflects back on her. So we do it by, by creating um, really you know, simply put, very elastic, stretchy (laughs) environments Mm -hmm. and structures. Mm -hmm. So if she wants to hang from it, it's going to give a little bit, but it's also going to resist um, to a certain degree as well. If she wants to climb in it, well, now it's like a big, you know, stretchy trampoline. So obviously, you know, she's going to roll into it, but it's going to bounce back. I think the one thing we've started to see, or at least an analogy for it, a lot of people with autism, there you do, I mean, at least stories from parents, you do hear about um, water being a really kind of valuable experience. And I think it's that same thing, right? There's this agency over water. When you're moving through water, you're obviously displacing it, but it's also pushing back on you. Right. When you're splashing water, you're obviously moving this stuff through the air, but you feel it as well, right? Mm -hmm. You feel the slap on the surface of the water. And I think for me, that kind of what we see with my daughter, that kind of give and take sensation um, is really powerful for her because she finally feels like she has a moment that she's in control of that environment and she can, you know, switch the buttons and turn the dials in a way that that environment becomes of interest to her. Mm. So the idea that, you know, we're giving as much agency as possible. And then that second part that we're trying to use, you know, materiality and color and light and, you know, projections and interaction to, to lay out as many kind of variables as possible so that children can really, you know, as, as many dials and buttons as possible so that, you know, from one child to another, they can really vary that experience quite greatly um, and find, you know, their comfortable zone. The other part in terms of just the second part in terms of uh, studying architecture, it really is a kind of challenging transition where 
you know, we do put that canvas out there, but we're only going to understand how valuable that canvas is once we put it in the hands of children to kind of complete that design process. Mm -hmm. So we're just, you know, forming a hypothesis and kind of putting it out there. And that puts architecture in a kind of very different position or not necessarily, you know, trying to evaluate our work on such a kind of behavioral um, level. So it starts to push it outside of my expertise. And that's where, you know, have to start to work with um, other collaborators that are more experienced in that moment of seeing how people operate in the space as opposed to just creating that space. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to um, ask you more specifically about the Sensory Theater, which is one of your collaborations, I think, with a, with a colleague from uh, MSU and and uh, maybe some others if, if you want to share some other, um, some more of sort of that next phase, if you will, or that pushing the boundary of, of the work that you're doing. It's really interesting. This is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. For those diagnosed with autism, the right educational, vocational, and residential programs can optimize their quality of life. At Anderson Center for Autism, we offer all of that and more. We've got programs rooted in evidence-based practices that unlock potential. And we also have a palpable spirit of community that will make you and your loved one with autism feel right at home. Schedule a tour to see for yourself. Call 845-889-4034 or visit andersoncenterforautism.org. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm speaking today with Sean Alquist, assistant professor of architecture at uh, University of Michigan. And thank you, Sean, for sharing so much of your background and your experiences with raising your daughter, who's 10, and uh, and, and on the autism spectrum, and, and a lot of your inspiration and your interest in what you're doing now based on um, you know experiences that you're having raising her. Now I'd like to ask you specifically about your collaboration with an, uh, a playwright from MSU and creating something uh, called the Sensory Theater Experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and um, and paint us a picture of, of, uh, of the Sensory Theater? Sure. So um, that project really brings together um, my research with um, that of a, of a colleague at Michigan State, Dion O'Dell. Um, where she had been developing what's called participatory theater. So the idea is that uh, you really do away with the audience, <laughs> and the audience, if anything, is a um, handful of children, sometimes six children, sometimes, you know, a dozen more. And they're on stage with the actors and the characters and really being a part of the experience of the play itself. So my interest in, in connecting with that is really just to, you know, expand the possibility for that multi-sensory experience and also bring in a stronger um, social component and see, you know, instead of engaging in social interaction through forms of play, Mm-hmm. Can we do it in a in a sort of semi-controlled way where social interaction is, uh, you know, a part of a story? It's a part of a narrative. It's an interaction with an actor. It's an interaction with a character that the actor is controlling. And then also, you know, wrap this entire thing in that kind of sensory-rich experience of colors and lights and textures and movement and space. 
and just see, you know, really expand, like I was saying, expand that kind of canvas, expand that palette for ways in which um, children can, um, through their own agency, create, you know, an interesting environment and experience for themselves. Interesting. Okay, so so are you? Um, how long has this been available, and and how is it available? <laughs> you know, where is it, and which children are attending and participating? And so combining architecture and theater um, in this very kind of inclusive experience is pretty new territory. Definitely new territory for myself and for Dion. Um, so part of the work has just been us figuring out what is the best way to collaborate, mm-hmm. and then also figure out you. Know, you know, if, if this is a kind of new territory for theater and a new territory for architecture, you know, how do we discover the, you know, best production, the best spaces to design um, that are interesting to the children that we're going to bring through? We definitely, we didn't want to go down to a path of just formulating our own ideas and then putting on this final production and crossing our fingers that, well, we hope it's going to work. Right. Um, So the stage that we're at, and this was kind of our first step, was last spring we essentially put on what we call a workshop where it was two weeks long. The first week was, um, you know, kind of setting up the environment, setting up the the projections and the colors and the lights, um, and Dion working with her actors to develop the songs. And then in the second week, we started um, having children come through, really just, you know, kind of one, two, three at a time. We'd practice different sections um, of the play that Dion had written out, try different songs, try different ways in which um, children would move through the environment, and just sort of see what worked and what didn't. And... And of course, it's, you know, it's, it's a quite, you know, extensive experience. I mean, we, we really think about, you know, what happens from the second they pull up to the door of the building, you know, what happens at the front door to bring them down to the theater? How do they enter into the theater? Mm -hmm. At what moment does the, does the production itself actually start? Mm -hmm. Um, so when you start to unravel all these different layers, there's really a lot to learn and a lot to practice. So we're going to, again, this spring, do another workshop where, you know, we can evolve things um, even further, practice them more, um, kind of start to get comfortable with, uh, or essentially start to get some, you know, results and feedback on that initial hypothesis and see what's working and start to, you know, get to the point that maybe we have a more kind of polished production. Um, and then in the um, at the end of the summer, we'll actually be a part of a festival taking place in Omaha, Nebraska, called the Common Senses Festival. And there, that's kind of our target to see if we can um, put this on as a more polished production, but uh, we'll see if we're, if we're ready for that. But, I mean, again, at the end of the day, I don't even know if we know what polished means because we always want, you know, the children to be as active and, again, have that agency to help drive not just the experience of play, like in, my, in, in the other um, line of work that I'm doing, but in the progression of a narrative. You know, mm-hmm. if a child wants to, to hear a song over and over, then, you know, let's make it work that we can keep singing that song over and over to keep them engaged and have them feel like they're a part of it. So, so I think... 
we're, we're still learning and, um, and just, uh, you know, making sure the, the children that we're doing this for are a part of that process of development um, the entire way through. Well, it's, it's, it's exciting stuff, and it seems like you are kind of pushing the envelope of what's been there before, so it's new, and it's, um, but, it, but it reminds me of how you were describing your work earlier where the, the, the types of environments and spaces that you're creating also have that elasticity and you and part of your part of what I'm getting from you just in terms of everything that you're approaching is about making sure you're not ever losing sight of the important feedback that you're getting from the children that might be experiencing a space or an environment, manipulating it in a certain way and then beyond just watching the way they might manipulate it, but the way then they respond to their own manipulation. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, I I see the same thing in terms of what you're describing with the sensory theater. Sean, we just have a couple more minutes left in our interview. And I wonder, um, when we were off air before, you talked to me about uh, Tech Twilight 2019, and it it looked like an opportunity for you to showcase um, some of your work. And you said something that I'd love for you to get a little bit more into, which is that there was an experience there that... That, um, that helped you, I guess, maybe reinforce for you or, or realize um, some of the challenges that many people who are considered neurotypical um, may not really think deeply about, which are that so many of the things that, that a lot of us take for granted in terms of our own environments, whether it's a chair or a hard surface or, or, a, or just the texture of anything in our offices, our bedrooms, our, our playrooms, our schools, that may present significant challenges to somebody who is neurodiverse. So I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit in terms of what you saw at Tech Twilight and maybe if there's anything you're doing from that experience in in the future. Yeah, so what was interesting with Tech Twilight is it is it is it somewhat of a demarcation where we're um, really starting to transition into thinking about where, when we set up these environments we design um, and putting them in more public arenas. So previously, you know, it, it was more about designing these environments and trying them out in a classroom um, or trying them out at a therapy center or in the theater where it's, it's a somewhat controlled environment in terms of the number of people coming through. So now we're starting to see what if we put these in, in more public uh, realms, more uncontrolled environments. And of course, what that means is environments where um, it's populated by both neurotypical and neurodiverse children. And now we can start to, in those moments, and this is what the opportunity at the Tech Twilight was, was to see in those moments how do neurotypical children compare and contrast in the way that they explore environments and interact with these really elastic, malleable, flexible systems that we create. How does that, you know, how does that uh, look in, in comparison to children that, you know, have autism or sit in that more um, neurodiverse area? And one thing that was quite interesting to see is really just from a from a technical point of view, um, the kind of wear and tear that it took on the materials. Mm-hmm. Watching you know just a, a, a range of children um, coming at these these structures and these spaces, you know some some treating it in more subtle ways and wanting to find you know a space to to just sit more like a hammock, but. Um, others who, you know, want to climb on it like a jungle gym. And one of the takeaways 
was really just that degree of wear and tear, and that when you do start to deal with the public realm, you now start to understand why all these surfaces are so hard and rigid and resilient. It's because that's what it takes for it to withstand all the kinds of ways in which um, children are going to engage it. Um, as a quick analogy, the, the people at the Hands-On Museum were always telling me uh, the story about how they've constantly had to rebuild the seats in the one ambulance that they have inside that space. <laughs> like a normal automotive speed seat of any scale could not withstand the abuse that it was taking with children jumping in and out of it mm-hmm. um, and, and using it in different ways. So they just had to build their own thing that would sort of emulate <laughs> a seat. Mm-hmm. So so I think it, you know, it, it, it puts a, a pretty big challenge in front of us that if we want to create an environment that can allow, you know, all kinds of children to explore it on their own terms and make it, you know, an inclusive environment that's not leveraging one person over another or privileging one person over another, you know, that this kind of responsiveness is key to that, figuring out how we can do that with these textile materials, with these flexible materials that we're using, how we can do that um, and still make it, you know, robust and resilient enough that's uh, it, that's that's what's on our plate next to figure out how to how to do that how to well, start transforming the materials we work with to accomplish that bigger goal. And I was just going to say, and it's going to take somebody as creative and and uh, and smart and <laughs> and engaged and dedicated as you and your colleagues. So, um, but that's an exciting next step to be taking. So I just want to thank you for being on the show and talking to to us about your work today, Sean. Sean Alquist uh, at the University of Michigan. Please keep us posted on on your next projects and and what comes to be through your work. It's really innovative and exciting. Certainly, thank you very much. This is One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week.